So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our speakers tonight, and that's April. Hi, I'm April. I'm a compulsive overeater. Yesterday, I was at my home meeting in Manhattan Beach, and we were going around and people were pitching, and I was feeling so grateful that we were talking about our little problems again, you know, and that we weren't talking about terrorism right now, and that we have some kind of respite. And it, 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 it's all about perspective. I think this world, the way I see it, the way I live it, the way I have my abstinence is all about perspective. Um, I've been an Overeaters Anonymous since December 1975. I count my abstinence from uh, February 11, 1981. Um, I've lost about 50 pounds. And um, I feel like the birthday person, London, said, which was, I can't even begin to describe how different my life was before, but some of you know what that's like. It was, I mean, I feel like giving you adjectives like dark, light, curtains down, curtains up, sitting, taking walks, you know, um, panicked breathing. I mean, it just feels like that for me. Also, some of the traditional things are in my life that I couldn't even see to the end that they would ever be. For example, I've been married 20 years. I have a 12-year-old son. I have a career I love. Um, those things seem to be so out of reach for me. I remember very specifically I was traveling in Switzerland um, mainly to get away from my problems. I was traveling in Europe, and I, had, I was meeting up with Renee, someone in program who I barely knew. I just knew that she was very abstinent and very perfect. And I was very imperfect, and I was very not really very abstinent. <laughs> and I was chubby, and she was, like, thin. And so I thought, this would be good for me. We're going to travel for a week, and then we were going to go to different countries. And um, I just remember thinking, just so forlornly, I was never going to be like Renee. I was never going to have whatever was coming her way in life. And that just, that sadness. And her food seemed to come so easy, and I was just barely holding on because I was in front of Renee. You know, and I was not going to make any mistakes in front of her. Um, and she, in fact, is in the South Bay today and has a wonderful life and has a wonderful, you know, husband and kids. And, and I can say that I share that. So let me tell you what it was like. Um, I grew up in Santa Monica, California, and my mom is a concert pianist and my father was a farmer, and our farm was in Yuba City, California, which is 500 miles north. And so he drove back and forth every other month. And my father and mother are both movie star beautiful. They just happen to be very, very attractive people. And so our, there were values in our house that were never spoken about how important looks were. It was just a given that the people that were surrounding us that came to our parties, that were just, that's what was important. And um, I always felt like they were A's and I was a B in that area. Um, I also felt intellectually that my father and my sister were A's and my mom and I were B's. I mean, I was always grading myself. And to this day, I'm still kind of trying really hard to be zen, you know, trying really hard to be this is an energizer battery. Good for it, you know. Or um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a culture somewhere that I read about when I was in college, and it was a sociology class, um, which doesn't have any word to place blame. 
So if a kite string is tangled, there's no way for you to say you tangled the kite string. All you can say is it's tangled. And it just seems like such a zen way to think and to live and how that vocabulary can affect you. Anyway, so um, that comparison began very early in my life where I was always comparing myself. And my overeating began in earnest probably around puberty, which I know is really common for um, particularly women. And I was just such a nice kid. And I think what I was doing in my compulsive overeating behavior was any kind of edge to my personality, anything that I thought was not acceptable, I would just not display it. It just didn't exist in me. And um, so so all through elementary school, I was just the good kid. And, and my sister was a little tough to be around. And my sister has such a rich life today because she's always been so honest. And I'm learning how to be honest in my life. I'm learning how to tell you the truth at the moment. Although I have to say that the other day I went over to a friend's house and she's from Europe and she served me coffee and she said, is that a little too strong? And I said, yeah, it's a little too strong. And she said, okay, I'll make you some other. And so she made me some, which was like still really strong. And she said, is that better? And I said, yeah, that's better. And it really wasn't, you know. So I'm still learning how far do you go and how do you not hurt someone's feelings and how important is it anyways. Um, so when I was in junior high, I started going on fruit juice fast because what my behavior was leading to was compulsive overeating and very in secret. I was staying up late. I was writing, um, typing on my little typewriter and writing all sorts of profound poetry and stuff. This was in the 60s and 70s. Um, and when everyone was asleep, I would creep into the kitchen and I would eat. I would also masturbate. And to me, that's, those are very similar behaviors because what it does is it zones me out. It's all the same. It's just a little less um, embarrassing to talk about eating. <laughs> um, and I just kept eating. When I was in high school, I was an acceptable weight. I, I was, looked fine. But this is where I talk about perspective, which is I didn't think I looked fine at all. I thought I was so heavy. And I look back, and I was a cute little teenager. And I, like, missed the joy of being that cute little teenager. I totally hated my body. You know, where that came from, probably from the culture a little bit, probably from my family, very definitely from my mom, who, has, who struggles with the same issues herself. I had a very dear friend my a boyfriend but also a friend who is heavy and my mom used to make derogatory marks, remarks about him and I used to look at my bitten fingernails and her bitten fingernails and thinking you know on some level it's the same behavior but we can sit on our fingers you know there's no difference in that I knew that I knew that on some basic level um, what I saved up to go to Europe when I got out of college and um, I was going to go with two girlfriends because my older sister had gone to Europe after, I mean, when I got out of high school, I'm sorry, so, because my older sister had gone to Europe when she had gotten out of high school with her two best friends. The difference was that I didn't really have best friends. I had lots of friends. I just, I make friends in a different manner. So I was kind of casting around for anybody. I didn't care. Are you my best friend? Oh, good. Okay, will you be my best friend? And it sort of fell through. Nothing really happened. And I was just the scared little 18-year-old that was really about 12 inside. I probably wasn't quite ready to go on such an endless, exciting adventure alone. But I had this feeling that I had promised the world that I was going. I had this, this feeling always that there were eyes 
looking at me like, you know, you, ha- you have when you're a teenager, you think you're the most important thing in the world, but it was a little bit beyond that. I couldn't forgive myself. I couldn't do something that would be um, out of the ordinary or um, would, would I get some kind of disapproval. I, was, I just wanted people to like me. So I went to Europe, very unprepared for all the feelings that came up, the loneliness and the fear and the whatever, and I pretty much ate my way through Europe. Those pastries really did the trick. You know? um, my family didn't have many sweets in our house because my mom was perennially on a diet. So here I was for the first time without any supervision, sort of like plowing my way through the French pastry stores of Europe. And in my first real sugar haze, I didn't really understand it. Um, so what would happen is I would go and I would get the pastries and I would go back to my little hotel and I would eat them and I would then cry about eight hours later. I mean, it was, it's a very powerful drug for me, and I didn't ever really see that direct relationship between the, the depression, the ups and downs that could bring about. And I came home, and I went to UC Davis, and there we had the dorms and the, um, the cafeterias that are attached to the dorms, and no one tells you you can't have thirds and fourths servings, you know. And here I was, this little, once again, fairly innocent teenager, and I happened to be in a dorm room with the most sophisticated, sexually active girl on campus, apparently. Um, and I was just, once again, so terrified of those feelings I was feeling in the end. I was comparing and the adequacy. So I just had more at dinner, you know, doesn't everyone? Um, and I began to gain weight very, very rapidly. I'm sure there were a lot of other things. I was. It's very complicated. It's not so simple. But... Um, you know, and I, there were certain foods that I ate, like pip and apples, which seemed to be, you know, fairly innocuous, except if you eat a whole bag in one sitting. It's that, that wonderful sweet sour charge that a pippin gives me that's a little dangerous sometimes. It's, that's any food. I can use any food. Just give me a chance to get out the hell of my way, you know. Um, and we get back to perspective. I was, I think probably 100, I'm 5'8", something like that, and I was probably 120 when I graduated from college. Right now I'm about 140, which is a fine weight. I'm comfortable with it. But I got up to about 140 in college, and I was in total despair. I just thought I was the ugliest thing going. And I remember having to go and get not a size 8, but a size 10 pants. Well, I'm fine with 10 today. But I was, it was so frightening, and I was crying, and I was coming back to the dorm, and some guy whistled at me. And that's when you think, huh? You know, it's, hello? What is this, what is this chattering in my brain that has no, that has no um, basis in reality? It's this, this myth that I'm living. And I still do it to, to, to this day to some extent, although I'm much better about checking it out. I think, you know, one of the tools I have is checking it out. Um, right now, I'm, in, I'm 47, and I'm going through... Um, something in my marriage which is a big challenge which is basically waking up and seeing our very different personalities and knowing I love this guy to death but seeing the problems that we have it's a new experience after 20 years I have been so um, non-critical of our relationship probably to our detriment so terrified of making any kind of waves as is my husband so we do this dance where we don't ever make any waves so so that there's this kind of a, um, we're losing something. We're losing the possibility of a depth in our relationship. And so today I learned to check things out. I learned to say, you know, it really seems like 
you were kind of pissed off there the other day. And then he can get the chance to say, oh, God, I was just so nervous about something at work. Whereas what I was doing that whole day, and this was just two days ago, was assuming he was angry at me. That, that And then I, in my mind, I got really angry at him back. You know, and here was this whole thing happening in my, my brain, and I just wasn't checking it out. And I do that a lot. So... Um, I was at UC Davis and I was gaining weight and I, I probably put on 30 pounds that first year and I was just in such despair. Um, I came home for the Hanukkah Christmas parties um, in Santa Monica that our family goes to and that's when I really hit bottom. You know, my, my, my story is that I came home and my mom said, Let's get you some nice clothes because I didn't really, I wasn't buying any new clothes. And so we went to this dress shop that her friend owned. And um, I was actually feeling pretty good that morning. And I walked in and I met this owner. And the owner takes me aside and she said, You're not as heavy as your mom says you are. So she's telling me something she thinks is good news. And I'm like, Devastated. So that's the beginning of this important day in my life. Um, so we went, we went and we bought a burgundy pantsuit. It was 19. 71, maybe it's 1970. And so we go to the first of three parties that night. First of two parties. So in the first party, it was a lot of relatives. And the, the relatives were taking my cheek and commenting on my weight in the way that relatives do. And now, with, with the way I can take a step back, I really understand that when you've dyed your hair green, people are going to say, gee, your hair is green. It's just a it's, it's just kind of going to come out of their mouth, not in an unloving way. When I've gained a considerable amount of weight, it's very hard for someone to pretend the elephant isn't in the room. But when I've gained a lot of weight, that's all is in my brain. I can barely breathe. I can barely see what, what's in front of me. I don't know what your name is. All I can go is, I've gained weight, I've gained weight, I've gained weight, I've gained weight. That tremendous self-hate. And so when someone informs me that I've gained weight, I feel like like I don't know. <laughs> and I just, I was very, it was very hard that first party. So we got back in the car and I was crying. And my sister, who did not have a weight problem, was, was very sympathetic. She didn't really empathize, but she sympathized. And she gave me a Kleenex and she said, you know, this next party, you're not going to have that problem because Bob and Sue at whose house it's going to be, are both at least 300 pounds overweight. It's not going to be a problem. I said, okay. And I felt a little better and didn't know all the people quite so much. And so I walked up the steps to Bob and Sue's house, and Sue opens the door, and she said, oh, April, looks like you put on about 30 pounds. <laughs> because only another compulsive overeater knows exactly how much weight you put on, right? She knows. She gets it. And I, it was just one of those days. It was at the very, very bottom of the barrel when I've totally... I've lost it. I lost it, and I'd never been to her house before, and I was sobbing, and I ran through her house and found the master bedroom and flung myself on the bed, and that was my pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, P-A-I-D. That, that was my real bottom. And in Sue, who wasn't a member of OA but knew about OA, and it was nothing she was able to ever attend or to buy into, there was a girl there who had, was about my peer and who had lost 90 pounds since the last time I'd seen her the year before. And Sue sent her into the room, <laughs> closed the door. And this girl sits down on the bed, and she pulls out that OA quiz 
Like, do you ever go to parties for the food instead of the people? Do you ever wait for people to leave so that you can eat everything in the refrigerator? Do you, you know, and all these things which is like, yeah, you know, do you ever go and eat, order for more than one person and pretend it's like not, you know, for someone else? You know? Oh my God. And I, oh, I was, my, she gave me some Kleenex and my makeup was running and, and I was answering yes to the majority of the questions and it was such a relief just hearing that someone could write those questions meant that there was someone else out there who, it just felt so alone. It felt like, I was the only one and I was a total freak and there's this green button in life about how to do life right and I didn't even know where to find the button, you know. So um, she offered to take me to a meeting. It was uh, during Christmas vacation. She was from New York. And we found a meeting at Crescent Heights and Olympic. And Crescent Heights and Olympic was one of the original OA meetings, I think. And it was in a triangular-shaped church on a triangular-shaped lot. And it was smoke-filled. Do you remember that? Um, and I remember walking in with certain disdain for the smoke and everything. And the, really the only thing that kept me there in that room and that, that encouraged me to come back was that they didn't charge admission. You know, I just thank you, God, for not for saying that anyone can come in because I was just judging my heart out. Now, now, one of the things I was surprised about was not everybody was heavy, which was a little confusing to me. I thought everybody would be enormous. And um, but they weren't. The person who was speaking, who to this day I don't remember who it was, but I do remember that he had lost a hundred pounds and kept it off for ten years. And to me, I I know people who've lost weight for a year, but I had a lot of skepticism about whether I could keep it off for more than a, just a year. I just didn't see a lot of people keeping it off. And I thought, okay, all right, maybe I can do this. So I took there was gray sheet and orange sheet that time. Gray sheet didn't have any bread. I didn't think I could do that one. Orange sheet had more uh, had bread, and there were three meals a day, nothing in between, weighed and measured. So I took orange sheet, and I don't know, you know, this is one of those God little trick things where I swear it said, and at night you can have a glass of milk. It never said that. It didn't say that at all. But for the longest time in my abstinence on what I thought was gray sheet, I made these elaborate milk and ice cream things with sweetened, you know, saccharine sweetened things that pretty much got me through the night. One cup of milk got me through the night. I don't know where I found that. And I, I went back to UC Davis, and I found a meeting in Sacramento. And Sacramento and UC Davis are about a 20-minute drive away, at least at the time they were. It's probably more crowded now. And for me as a college student stuck at campus, driving there was going to any length. It was a big deal to get in the car, go off campus, and go once a week. It was a big, big deal. And, and it was um, what I was willing to do. So I went to these meetings. And I didn't really hear anything about the steps. I didn't really hear, you know how this is a three-pronged program and that we have, it's like a stool with three um, legs. And part of it is emotional recovery. And part of it is spiritual recovery. And part of it is physical recovery. Well, I didn't hear anything but the physical. That was all I was capable of hearing at the time. Best of my ability. So I... I listened. I got a sponsor. I, I was absolutely accurate about calling her with my food and sticking to it. But because I wasn't able to hear, and possibly this group was taking babysit steps on its own, and possibly it was, it was filled with people who weren't giving me role models to do that. I'm not sure. When the first wind that blew, it could have been a toenail that broke off. I don't know. It was, um, I got sick. As it turned out, um, 
it was like Epstein-Barr virus. I thought it was mono, but it could have been anything. I was alone in my apartment that I shared with a couple of women, and there was me in the refrigerator, you know, and it was really scary. And I remember the first inkling that I got that this was not Weight Watchers was when I called my sponsor. It was a very um, rare case of being willing to go past what I understood. I called her and I said, I really want to eat. And she said, turn off the television and write a letter to someone who needs your help. Which is all about getting out of myself, getting out of the selfishness of me and doing something and reaching out for, to someone else. It was, it was just a little bit of understanding I had of that. Um, that was, so I started away in December, of, January of 1975. Right prior to that, I had tried everything I had tried. Weight and measuring cheese, just cheese all day long. And I had tried going to a hypnotherapist in Berkeley in the dead of night with $75 in cash, which was a lot of money. And I had tried all sorts of things, and nothing was working. And OA seemed to be doing something, and I was losing weight. And I no longer had to wear that ugly brown jacket, you know, the one that I thought meant that no one could see what it was like the invisibility cape in Harry Potter. I thought no one could tell how heavy I was. It was like so ugly. Um, so in Ju- so I was doing very well that spring. And in June, June 6, 1976, my father died suddenly of a heart attack. Now I had been raised in this fantasy life where nothing really had gone wrong. I was a very happy childhood. And that was such an incredibly powerful shot because I had no any kind of experience to how to deal with this kind of thing. But but there was enough of me that understood about this disease that said, you know, if you broke your abstinence now, people would understand. <laughs> and I thought, later, maybe not so much, but if you broke it today. And so for the first six months, recovering from hit, from this, this incredible shock to my family, I ate and I ate. Now, the thing that I did not do is I didn't ne- have never left OA. And Yuba City, California doesn't have a lot of OA meetings, but there, were, there was one meeting that I went to every week, and I think it saved my rear end. Even just having some kind of community, even having people who loved me while I was eating, it just helped me. Uh, maybe, maybe it helped me not have to deal with his death quite yet. And I think that every character defect I have, including compulsive overeating, has some kind of benefit, or my body wouldn't do it. I think that that benefit is to block out things I'm not able to deal with. And as I learn to use other tools through this program and through life, then I don't necessarily have to use the food. But I think if I had tried to abstain through his death, maybe I would have gotten an ulcer. I mean, I think my body was so unprepared to deal with it that that wasn't a terrible thing in my life. It was what I needed to do. So about um, six months later, I came down to Los Angeles to start start my life, uh, having graduated from college. And I started going to Overeaters Anonymous meetings and feeling just like I was never going to get it because then I started to slip. And I was every month I was I would abstain for a month and then unbeknownst to me, not getting a connection for a while, ever brought about my period, I would just slip. You know, I, I just really didn't get that connection for a while. Regarding the spiritual part, um, I am I was raised um, uh, sort of a secular humanist Jew, a Jew without any kind of belief in God. And I thought that if I believed in God through OA, 
that it had something to do with Jesus Christ. I really didn't understand that there was a God for me too. That it didn't have to be like a Catholic or Protestant or other kind of God. That Jews had gods too. <laughs> you know, that's how little I knew about my religion. Um, but I had a sponsor among many who's wonderful, and he made me write out. If I had a higher power, if I could make up a higher power, what would the personality traits of that higher power be? What would be useful to me? And I wrote someone who was really loving and someone who had a great sense of humor. And I just remember beginning to build some kind of sense of what it would be like if. And at the time, the thing that worked for me is that I pictured my God as a being on an empty stage and there was one theater chair with a spotlight on it. And I pictured that if I could just put my bag of troubles on the chair, I could walk out of that theater and, and, and the chair would take care of it. You know, that was about the best I could do. That was God. And I had a, um, a God jar where I put my concerns and my fears. And I, it took me a long, long time to recover from my father's death. I have to say that it was about nine years before I felt back, back to whoever it was I was. Um, and during that time, I went through a lot of different sponsors and a lot of different abstinences, and I wrote many, many inventories, and I'll tell you what began to work for me. One day, February 11th, 1981, I went into a meeting, and I, someone came up to me, I guess. A woman named Catherine came up to me and asked if I would like her to be my sponsor. And no, I didn't want her to be my sponsor. She was Hitler, thank you very much. She was you know, one of those pre-now, pre-how people. Um, no, but the word yes came out of my mouth. I can't, I swear to God, I don't know how that happened because no, I did not want her of all people to be my sponsor. And what, you know, she had a lot of requirements because it was very Hitlerian. She, I had to go to a meeting every single day. Well, I was a busy woman, thank you very much. I had to weigh and measure my food. I had to call her exactly the same time every day that we agreed on. If it was a minute less and she wouldn't answer the phone, and too bad. I had to write 15 minutes every day. I had to call three people every day. I had to get three phone numbers from OA meetings, not from a list, but from going up to the people and asking their phone number, which was an incredibly useful tool because I had to talk to people. I didn't actually have to call those people, but I had to actually talk to them and get their phone numbers. And if I came to a meeting late, it didn't count. I had to go to another meeting that day. Now, only in L.A. could you ask that of someone else because we had 100 meetings a week at that time in Los Angeles. And I did that for 222 days straight. I really did because nothing else worked. And I remember saying to her, you know, I could sort of do everything else, but the meeting a day was going to really be a problem because I had Laker tickets in two days, and I wasn't going to be able to go. And she said, well, can you just go tomorrow? I said, uh-huh. She said, well, let's just take it one day at a time. And so by the time two days had passed, I became so willing I gave those tickets away. It was the most incredible thing because I don't know where it came from. And my feeling is, you know, it's just like you're on this blurry TV channel, and one day you're just willing to turn it to a channel that receives better. And I can't say that I did anything different that day or that maybe Catherine would have asked me the day before I would have really said no. I don't know. I just know that I never left away. So when I was ready and she was ready, we were there in the same room together. So I worked with her, and um, I lost a tremendous amount of weight. Now, she only had a year more absence than I do, so she was still learning, too, on this. And at some point... She said that, okay, you've lost all your weight now. Now you can take back sugar. We'll just do it a moderate amount, and you can commit it to me. 
Well, what I learned from that was, no, I can't take back sugar. Thank you very much. You may be able to do it, but no, I can't. And so I was eating a weight measure. Well, I wasn't eating weight measure. I was eating committed m- meals for the next year. I gained weight. And it was very humiliating because I had been very sassy about how perfect I was in programming because I, it was my life. That's all I was doing that year. It was just a learning experience. I had to learn that for me, um, this is what I've learned regarding food, regarding the physical recovery. For me, um, for the first 10 years of my abstinence, I ate three meals a day, nothing in between, no bread, uh, no um, white flour products because I have an allergy to that. Um, Then it began to change a little bit, and I found that, no, I guess it didn't change to that point. Never mind. I don't have anything with sugar unless it's listed fifth or below in the ingredients label. And that's not to say that I don't go out and I know that in the barbecue sauce of the chicken, I know it's probably first, but that doesn't count because I'm going to have the chicken on the menu, thank you very much. I do the best I can in, in an external situation, but I'll tell you, those first 222 days, I had to weigh and measure in restaurants. Is that hard or what? What it was like was it was like being in a rehab hospital, except I wasn't. I mean, that's really what it was. And I have to tell you guys that... It took me six years to be willing to do that. I was I was kind of flopping around program like a fish on a you know on a boat, out of water, dying, not completely unhappy, not terribly ugly, gaining weight, just feeling yucky using food, and just everybody people would come into program, get perfect, and have a life, and I was sitting there flopping about on my boat. So it took me six years within program to say, you know what, maybe I should just try this. Let me just try it. What would be so bad? If she asked me to commit suicide, I know I won't do that. So I think I have enough judgment to just try it. So it's painful. So if, it, if it's something about building a foundation. So um, uh, then I guess the next thing that happened was, so I got pregnant. I had a real struggle with infertility. And boy, was that hard because... In America, we're taught that if you want to climb Mount Everest, then you just train and then you do it. There's really nothing in my life in this community, this country that I was ever taught that I couldn't do. So here we are, two college-educated people, and we thought, you know, you have sex, you have a baby, right? Isn't that what everybody told you? And that wasn't happening. And it was... Um, actually took us two years to have our wonderful son and then another eight years of struggle before we gave up for another child which I haven't ever completely given up that has always been a real painful thing for me Um, but that was a real interesting lesson in I guess I don't have control I really don't and I have to let that one go and boy is that hard and it's one of those things where I let go and then it comes back and I let go and it comes back and I make some progress and then I'm stuck um, and I feel sorry for myself, and I block people out, and then I'm back, and I can be present for you. All of these things, like my father's death and my, my struggle over the years with chronic fatigue syndrome and my infertility, have only served to soften me, I think, and made me. I think, you know, in, in Arts Anonymous, Arts Anonymous is Artists in Recovery Through the 12 Steps. That's what it stands for. And it's for people um, who are artists, singers, dancers, writers, composers, whatever. And it's just a wonderful program. And in Arts Anonymous, I was taught this prayer. God, make me a hollow reed through which the pith of self has been blown. Isn't that neat? And so I picture myself as this, like, clear glass flute. 
And so, like, God's up there, and I'm on the, and I'm just, I'm, I'm up to be of service. So I have five more minutes left to tell you what it's like now. When I finally did get pregnant with my son, I, um, I began to feel faint with the food program that I was using. And so I went to a, a nutritionist in West L.A. who was very familiar and comfortable with O.A. and thought it was great. And he said, it's time now to listen to your body. And I said, pardon me? He said, you really can. You're there. He said, you really have to listen to what your body is hungry for and you know how to eat well. And it was so frightening to me to just be willing as a pregnant person to eat what was appropriate. And what became appropriate while I was pregnant was I could have bread again. And it, I didn't seem to have any reaction. I didn't have sugar. I, I don't cross that line. It's too scary for me. I'm not sure if it's a real line or if it's a line I've made up, but it doesn't matter. Um, so it was great. I could have sandwiches. It was, like, so great. Um, when I did give birth, the allergy came back. And that is not unusual. And I didn't understand that until I kind of flopped around and went to a... Um, health person and who explained it to and showed me and so what I found was that I seem to be able to have wheat once a week or so and that seems to be okay so I would have weekday and every Sunday was weekday and I would wake up and I have a croissant and then I would have I would have a sandwich and then I would have spaghetti and it was always spaghetti on Sunday it was like a big celebration in my house but I always needed a nap on Sundays because that's how it affects me so my husband accountant that he is said well, why don't you just give yourself three meals a week? Isn't that the same thing? And for two years I thought, that was stupid. And then one day I decided, well, maybe that makes sense. Um, so now what I do is I have three dinners a week, and they're floating dinners. They're usually Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, just so you know. Um, <laughs> if you want to invite me over. But what that means is that, um, so if when we go out with friends and we all go to a Italian restaurant, I can order what is comfortable and it's there and I can, I can hold a weekday back and use it for something. And because it's at night, if I get a little tired from the wheat, it does, it's appropriate. So I do that. Um, the other thing is I don't eat three meals a day anymore, and that's interesting. I eat when I feel like it. I don't eat sugar, and I don't eat upstairs. And when I don't eat upstairs, what that means is it, it has to be very, I have to be aware if it's after dinner and I want to eat, then I have to go down to the cold, dark, lonely kitchen. And April, you can if you want to, but are you sure you want to be down there? Can you just have a glass of water? I have water upstairs. So um, that's, that's one of the things that I do that has worked for me. And the, the spiritual part has, has really come roaring into my life in the last couple of years. It's something that, it's, it's connected to that Zen thing, which is, I try not to judge myself. I am who I am. This is what I do in the morning. I get on my knees and I say, help me to be a channel today. I go to the mirror in my bathroom, which I've only been able to do for the last year, and I touch the mirror and I look myself in the eye and I say, you're doing a good job. Good for you. I love you. Boy, is that hard. And then I try to be a channel. So thank you very much. Okay. So questions? Yes. When I talk about when I first started listening to my body and eating <coughs> and what that was like, I had nightmares for a little bit. It seems to me that any large uh, change in my life, I have nightmares for about three days, um, and I, they're nightmares where I'm dying. 
you know, I'm, I'm in a nuclear explosion or aware of something. And, it, and what my therapist told me was that it's two warring parts of me, one that wants to do something and one that doesn't. And, it, and when it's settled, when I've come to terms with it, then the, the nightmares die, and it usually takes about three days. So I had nightmares because I was so frightened of making that change. It had been ten comfortable years. Plus, I was gaining weight naturally because of pregnancy. So what did I do? Well, I liked canned tomatoes a lot. <laughs> and what was interesting is I would, I would get on these things, like I'd love canned tomatoes, or I really was really into beets at one point. And, and then I would go back to this nutritionist who'd go, you know, that's exactly what you need in your system and this month. If, you know, he'd go, well, there's B7 in there, or whatever. I don't even know if there is a B7. But whatever was in the beets was exactly what I needed at that point, which made me feel like I can listen to my body. You know, there were certain cravings one night. I mean, this is more of a pregnancy story than an OA meeting, but I, I only had one really amazing, very specific craving when I was pregnant, and I wanted bouillabaisse. On a Wednesday night at 8 o'clock at night, my husband comes dragging home from work, and I wanted to bouillabaisse, which is a big fish soup. So he drags around, we call everybody, we finally went to this fish place, ordered bouillabaisse, it came, and I got nauseous and had to leave. <laughs> So, but that's really not OA. So it was it was very <laughs> it was very scary, and um, and it still is scary. Sometimes I think I'm cheating. Sometimes I think I still I really do feel that I use food when I don't want to face things that I that I have more than I need on my body. That it would be nice to weigh less. But just for today, this is where I am. This is who I am, and I don't want to let those thoughts get in the way of me being a channel. I try really hard to know that there are terrorists out there and people who are dying of leukemia and is this so terrible? You know, this is the perspective thing. Yeah. Uh, I just started doing uh, affirmations myself. Why is it hard for you to look in the mirror and say, you're doing a good job, I love myself? I, mean, I don't mean to get right. too deep, but just, just what reaction feelings does that bring in? You, you just started doing affirmations and you wanted to know why was it so hard for me to do that affirmation about looking in the mirror and saying, I love myself. I can do, and then there's some I can't. you about, too. I feel like a fraud. Or yes. So what was my feeling when I, why was that so hard? You know, it's, it, well, it was embarrassing. I'm not sure that's the right word. I did feel like a fraud. I wouldn't even consider it prior. Honestly, I wouldn't even consider it. And I began to, the one thing that, that helped me a little bit was um, many years ago, there was a woman in West L.A. named Doreen, and she had meetings at her house. And there was, she had something in her bathroom that said, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, and doing exactly right. And I put that in my bathroom for a long, long time. And then I had some help with my therapist, I guess, although she's not the one who prescribed it. I just, I remembered people doing it in program. Dora Siegel talks about doing that. You know, it's one of those things where the channel changes on the TV. I can't really tell you why I couldn't one day and one day it seemed like the, the only thing that was right. And now it feels like it's nice to have a little formula in the morning when I wake up. And it is hard. I look myself in the mirror, and I, I'm not a morning person, so I look awful, and I look bloated, and I, and I love myself anyways. Yes? Is there anything that you, you've done or do at any point in your program about body image that's really helped you? Is there anything I've done or do about body image in my program that's helped me? Well, when I first came into program, there was a woman years ago named Tamara. Um, and she came up to me. She was a very good friend of mine. And she said, 
we're going to have to take you shopping, April. And I dressed like a little girl because developmentally I really was a little girl. And she encouraged me to buy adult woman clothes, which was, I actually wasn't ready for it yet, honestly. But later on, I mean, it was sort of, it was sort of like, um, you do the do and your, and your, and your feelings follow. You do it anyways. So I bought these adult women clothes that I didn't really, I felt like a fraud. I didn't feel like an adult woman at all. Uh, the other thing is I, I found a pants, um, style and make that makes me feel comfortable, makes me feel lovely, and I don't care what the size is. And it, um, I have a problem with tightness around the waist. It really hurts me. So I can't wear tight waists. What else about body image? Um, it's very tough, and it, again, it's very relative. My, fam- my husband's family lives in Albuquerque, and his, one of his sisters is very petite and very beautiful. And when I go to Albuquerque and I look in their mirror, I am bigger. You know, and it's, it's the same me, but I swear to God, I look heavier in their mirror. <laughs> the other thing is the scale. Um, I used to have to weigh once a month with Catherine and I and her job was she said you go to the bathroom you take off your clothes you jump on the scale you jump off the scale and you call me and that was what I had to do once a month when I was on a losing abstinence what I've learned to do since is I only weigh myself when I feel thin I don't really see the point of weighing myself when I feel fat I probably am fat okay so <laughs> so is there a benefit in knowing this <laughs> yeah. in fact it's so funny because our scale broke our scale broke about a month ago and my, my husband uses one and, um, and and every once in a while I'm tempted to use it, and I do. And there, I don't really see the point, really. I either fit in my clothes or I don't. I'm either eating appropriately or not. So I was very relieved because it broke, and we took it out in the garage, and my son was playing with it. Well, for for Hanukkah, he gave me a scale. He gave a family a scale, and I just like, oh, how nice. Thank you. <laughs> you know, because he wanted one. That, that's all. <laughs> Body image. I think that's all about that. Yes. How did um, I talked about not going back to the food when my father died? Going back to the food when my father died, and how did I not go back to the food when I was dealing with the struggle of infertility, realizing I would not have another child? Hmm. Well, when my father died, um, I didn't. You know, the road gets narrower. It's sort of like when London talked about um, her insanity today. Her, san- her insanity today would be so much better than her sanity in the old time. I mean, so when my father died and I was not abstaining yet, my binges were such binges. And now when I use food, it's, I don't use sugar, and I maybe have another one of those things that whatever it is that's okay to eat. And so I have to say, honestly, I probably do still eat over those things, and I probably still do coat my feelings. Um, but I also have a wonderful therapist, and I have some people in OA that I talk to. And frankly, I think it's just growing up. I think OA has helped me grow straighter up. You know, maybe I would have been a little bit more crooked or something, but I think that as a woman in my 40s, I'm a little bit more equipped. It may just be that simple. And also, I talk about these things. I've learned through OA to say to someone, I'm really struggling with infertility, and it used to be things that I wouldn't talk about. Maybe? Just a question. Okay. Thank you very much.